All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. It is so, 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 so good to see all of you, and there's a lot of you. So if you could do this, if there, is, if there are empty spaces next to you, uh, if you could just ooga, ooga, ooga in and get comfy with the person maybe next to you, because there's people uh, that couldn't find, uh, it wasn't you, it was them. They couldn't find any seats. Um, they really wanted to sit next to you. They just thought you were putting out the vibe that they weren't welcome. So if you could uh, just make sure that there's spaces, then people could, uh, could find those. That'd be great. All right. Well, we are in a thing called The Story, and The Story is our attempt as a church uh, to use this book um, done by Lakato and Frazee, which takes Scripture all the way through from Genesis to the book of Revelation to help us understand the storyline of the Bible. So many of us are super intimidated by the Bible because it's confusing, um, or the parts that aren't confusing sometimes are offensive. And so our attempt is to help us understand this amazing equal opportunity offender, which is the Bible that is life-giving, um, and to really sink our teeth into it. We're now in the, in the, we're in the New Testament. Last week, Pastor Brent uh, talked through uh, the, the arrival of the Messiah. And, and the big thing that we need to understand with the Messiah is this. From the beginning, like the beginning of the story, this, this connection with God that needed to be re-restored is, is, is something that, that we see people hoping for and longing for. And then all of a sudden, all these prophets are saying, not only is God going to bring you back into your homeland, boom, you got a nation, that's great, but that's not the end game goal. That's not the end of it. Not only is God going to bring you back, but he's also going to do something that you can't run away from, something that you can't, can't escape, which is something to deal with your sin. There's going to be a Messiah. So by the time we get to the first century, lots of people are expecting the Messiah, Okay, the Messiah is going to come. And, and Jesus is not the only Messiah who is on the scene. In the first century, there was lots of people who said, Ed, Ed's the Messiah. And then, and then Ed like falls off a cliff or gets, I don't know, kicked by a donkey. And then they're like, dang, I thought Ed was the Messiah. So they had to move on to a new Messiah. But they were looking for a Messiah. And if you open up your, Bi or up your Bibles to John, or if you open up your a copy of the story to chapter 23. We're focusing in on the beginning of Jesus's ministry where we're talking about the man. We're gonna talk about the message and his movement in upcoming weeks, but right now we're talking about the man of Jesus. And that's something that the people closest to him wanted to make it very clear who he was. And they've got a great title, Jesus's Ministry Begins, but I kind of retitled it, yeah, but different than you imagined. Because Jesus was radically different than anyone imagined if they were looking for the Messiah. Back in the day, first century, if you're looking for the Messiah, you're looking for someone who's kind of like a mixture of Pope Francis, Abraham Lincoln, and Braveheart. You're looking for somebody who's super religious and someone that everyone could look up to and say, yeah, he represents us. He's like super holy and stuff. You wanted a guy who knew the Levitical law. You wanted a guy who understood all that. But you also wanted a statesman. You wanted someone who had some political punch to him that people could respect and look up to. This is one of the last presidents we could do that with. Abraham Lincoln is the one who actually a lot of people are, would, would be, yes, that's what we're looking for because we are occupied by Rome. And they look at us as third world people who can't govern ourselves and we need to have them occupy us for us to fit into their grand scheme of things. We need an Abraham Lincoln. We need someone who could actually show them that we are able to govern ourselves that we are not third world, that we are not peons, that we are actually people who are able to do that. We need Abraham Lincoln. So we need Pope Francis, we need Abraham Lincoln, but we also need William Wallace, okay? Because we need, we are oppressed by Rome. These guys are not wimps. 
These guys invented torture, okay? These are bad people. And there are people who actually are occupying us. We need someone who's not just going to come in and say, all right, we want our land back and stop, get out of our land and we can rule our... We don't want that. We want someone who can actually make them pay for what they've done to us. They deserve it. And they deserve to not only be kicked out of our country, but they deserve to be bleeding as they leave. We need a William Wallace. And if everyone in the first century were honest, they probably would say, honestly, we kind of like to duct tape them all together. Because if we had all three of these guys together, that would be the Messiah. So all of a sudden, Jesus enters the scene. And when Jesus enters the scene, all of a sudden, the people are like, is this the Messiah? And those closest to Jesus said, yeah, yeah, but different than you imagined. He is going to take all of your expectations and flip them so radically, you're not going to know what to do with yourself. And so what we're going to talk about today are the the titles for Jesus that his disciples, those closest to him, wanted us to know, wanted the people to know about him and how different he was than their expectation. The first is this, king. The, The disciples really wanted us to know that this Jesus, this dude that was walking around, that was a person you could touch, was actually king. But when you think of a king, what, what types of qualities do you think of? Like, think of a king. What, what are some attributes that make them kingly? Royal, crown, boo, yeah, big time rich. What else? Yep, yeah, so very, yeah, so this is a person that's like that. Jesus, Jesus was radically different than they imagined if they were looking for a king. And yet the, the, the followers of Jesus and the writers of the gospel wanted us to know that he was. The reason that he's so different is this, because this, this king was under-resourced. He was not rich. He did not have a royal entrance the way that we would think if he was going to be a king, he would. He, he, he was underprivileged and under-resourced. And he came from an underprivileged family. We know that because of the fact that Matthew or Luke records that when Joseph and Mary come to present him to the temple, that was like Levitical law. You got a kid, you bring the kid to the temple, and you either say, okay, this kid is going to be raised in the service of the temple, but 99% of people said, no, we're going to raise our kid ourselves, but they would pay a temple tax, and the tax was a lamb, okay? But Leviticus chapter 12 has a caveat, a loophole. If you can't, if you're just so far down on the economic spectrum, if life has just been super, super sketchy financially in the past, if you can't pay for it, if you can't pay for a lamb, no sweat, just bring a couple of pigeons, bring a couple of doves. Luke chapter 2, verses 24 tells us that when Joseph and Mary came to present Jesus, what did they bring? A lamb? They brought two birds. So we know that Jesus is growing up in an underprivileged family. Was that your story? That was Jesus' story. He was king, but he was not coming from a resourced backdrop. Not only that, he came from an underprivileged hometown. Um, I don't know how you feel about the hometown you grew up in, but the hometown that Jesus grew up in was embarrassing. Okay, it's kind of like the type of thing, like if you, if you what, I don't know whatever your hometown is, but when you talk to people and, and you're like, and they say, oh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And you say, uh, Chicago. Because you don't want to say whatever it is, okay? Because you think, how, I don't want to surface that I came from Manuka, Morris, Braidwood, Wilmington, or whatever. Because like, I, what good has come out of these places? What good has come out of Manuka outside of Nick Offerman, really? And so like, the thing is, it's like, I don't want to like surface that for, maybe that was you. We're like, I just, what good has possibly come out of this town or this town or this town that I came from? Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was the armpit of the armpit of Judah, 
It was not the place that you would want to surface if you wanted to impress anyone. Certainly not the thing that you would say if you wanted to showcase your kingliness. Take a look at chapter 1 of uh, John or story page 324. On page 324, this is the last paragraph. And this is when the disciples are starting to get, like, they're starting to accumulate around Jesus. And again, the question they're asking is, is he the guy? Last paragraph says this. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Ooh, ooh. Did you hear that? Bethsaida. Mm Mm-hmm. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. So, so listen to that. I mean, look, everyone's looking for this guy. Remember how we thought it was Ed? We were way off. But Jesus, we think Jesus is the one. Jesus of, of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Listen to uh, Nathaniel's response. Nazareth? Na- Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. I love that. Okay, because again, just imagine, like if, if there was a president, like the next president of the United States, let's just say, came from Manuka, or came from Braidwood, or Morris, or Wilmington. The, ne- the president of the United States came from, the, or like the president of the United States came from Gary. What good? What good could come out of Gary outside of Michael Jackson? What good could possibly come out? And so this is like mind-blowing stuff, right? That, that Nazareth why, this king is someone who not only comes from a poor family, but comes from an armpit town that doesn't sound like the making of a story. And yet, those closest to Jesus said, I know, I know, but it's true. Not only king, but this Jesus was also, according to those who were closest to him, God. God. Now, God is a big step. It's a big leap. Because when we hear Messiah as people in the 21st century who've done a little bit of church in our life, we think of Messiah as being equivalent to God. But it wasn't. Again, lots of Messiahs are guys who said, oh yeah, I did this healing or I did this over here. So the title Messiah was not equivalent to God. Messiahs were, were they were dudes. They were people. They were, that, you could touch them. But God is different. For Jesus or his disciples to assert that he was not just Messiah or the anointed one, but on top of that, he was God, was a blasphemous, heretical leap. You don't say that. You don't affirm that. Those closest to Jesus wanted us to know, yes, he is God, but we got to tell you, way different than you imagined. See, because when we look at Jesus, we realize that Jesus was all God all God and all man simultaneously. Okay, and which is like one of those things where for the first century, people are like, okay, wait, why, why is he not just picking a team? Is he God or is he man? Because like either he's like, maybe he just looks like a man, but he's a mirage and we're just duped by his like awesome David Copperfield magic stuff or, or he's man, but he's not God, but he can't, he can't be both. And the first century, people are like, I know, I know this seems radically altered to, to what we would put together logically, but it's true. He is 100% God and 100% man, not 50% God and 50% man, all God and all man simultaneously. I need you to repeat after me this, this, this awesome term, hypostatic. Really good, way better than 8 a.m. Hypostatic union. Okay, that's a really important theological word to remember. It's 
one of the few that I can remember. But hypostatic union means all God and all man at the same time. That is what Jesus was. Totally different from someone who, like, we're expecting God to be someone up in the sky, and yet he's here and he's having dinner with us. This God is someone who actually, as he's walking through the town, gets hungry. God got hungry. God got tired. God got thirsty. They're they're watching Jesus very, very human and trying to reconcile the fact that at the same time, he's making claims about himself that we are checking out to be true, that he's not just man. He's all man and all God simultaneously. But not only that, we also see that Jesus, according to his disciples, the people who were closest to him and those around him, was part of the eternal and equal Godhead. That that he was actually part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is super important because the the, the crazy thing about this is that, that, again, that's something that as people who are going through the Old Testament, they're, they're picking up on different things that seem out of place. Like God talks about himself singularly as one and only God, but also he talks about himself in the plural. But he talks about him that way before he creates angels and before he creates humanity. So who is he talking to? And if he's one, how can he be more than one? And all of a sudden, all these little tiny clues, like breadcrumbs all throughout the Old Testament, start to surface, and then, all, and then in the New Testament with Jesus, all the puzzle pieces come together, and we realize that there is one God in three persons. And one of the places we see that is that when Jesus' ministry begins, and it's right there in the book of Matthew, chapter 3, or story, uh, on the story page 322. This is third paragraph down on, on, uh, on page 322. Or actually, let's just go up to the second paragraph. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Okay, pause. This is, again, whereas Americans, we can, like, read through stuff like that and go, oh, okay, so he's in Galilee, and he wants to go over to the Jordan, so he just, like, walks 15 feet, and there's John, and he gets baptized. Boom. But the truth is, is that, that for the people who just went, came back from Israel, You see how crazy long these people had to walk everywhere. Galilee is like up here. And to get where John was is way down here. This is a massive trip. We we had an opportunity to baptize a bunch of people um, on the Israel trip in the Jordan River. And this is uh, Kenji getting baptized. And I love that picture. It's so cool. Part of it is you know that he's just exuberant, excited about the fact that he got baptized. Part of it is hypothermia setting in because the water was so cold. But he, he's ecstatic. But the cool thing, the interesting thing is that this spot, this beautiful location with eucalyptus trees and everything, if this is the Sea of Galilee, it's like right here at the base. Jesus is up here hanging out in Galilee. This is not where he got baptized. That was not the spot of the Jordan River where Jesus got baptized. John's ministry was way down here, just north of the Dead Sea. So Jesus hikes with his disciples down, or Jesus hikes before he, before he got disciples, before his ministry started, down from the Galilee area down there, down to the area that looks a lot more like this. This is the Judean wilderness, and that's the Jordan in the, in the, in the distance there. This is a lot more, and it's like Star Wars episode four, right? That's kind of look, and that's, that's kind of where you're, you're seeing Jesus' ministry, or uh, John the Baptist's ministry, where Jesus went. And the actual Jordan location where Jesus got baptized was not nearly as beautiful as it is up by the Sea of Galilee. Look, this is the Jordan down there, which looks like somebody just took a dry riverbed and poured in like Nesquik or something. It's not pretty. It's not gorgeous. It's kind of just scuzzy, but it's, it's, it's where Jesus was baptized. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I've always wondered, when, what was the deal? Like, when a person gets baptized, they're saying, today, we're being baptized saying, I am lining up with what Jesus did for me in, in his death and in his resurrection. It's like me being brought into the water, showcasing my death to sin and aligning with Jesus' death for me and, and then coming back to life. And that, that, that's the amazing thing about baptism. But Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't, he didn't have anything to repent from. But what Jesus is doing is this. Uh, the Old Testament prophets said that there was going to be a voice, like a, a forerunner of the Messiah, the Messiah that everyone was waiting for. And that that person would, would like basically shout that this guy is on his way. John the Baptist was that. So Jesus comes and says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. The prophet said there was going to be a foreigner. That's you. Me getting baptized by you is basically the induction into my ministry, letting everyone know this is the guy and I'm the Messiah you're waiting for. Also, the other cool thing is this, that John the Baptist's line, his family, came from priests. In the Old Testament, the priests were the ones that would bring the, the lamb, um, the sacrificial lamb, before God and before the people to say this, this lamb is being atoned for everyone else. And it's so cool that John is the one that baptizes Jesus. And the next time he sees him, he says, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was operating as a priest, bringing the sacrificial lamb of Jesus in front of everyone. Super, super cool. Next paragraph says this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All of a sudden in that moment, we see the three members of the Trinity, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in one location. Just take a look. You can underline it in your Bible or in your book if, you, if you've got it. As soon as Jesus, bing, second person of the Trinity, was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God, bing, that's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that voice comes from the Heavenly Father. Most of the time in the Bible when we hear a voice from God, it's Jesus. But this is one of those moments where we actually hear the voice of the Heavenly Father. Now, this, I just got to sidestep this in for one moment and just say this, that if you haven't been baptized, if you're, if you're someone who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I've never been baptized, I've never taken that step of publicly declaring that, that what Jesus has done in me, I want to publicly declare that to others. I want to encourage you to jump on uh, to the church's website and sign up for that to be baptized. We're actually going to have a baptism service here. Uh, it's going to be during the Easter services. It's going to be so cool. My favorite weekends of the year at, at NBC are the baptism services. So jump on to the website and sign up for it. If you have questions about it, you can talk to me. But Jesus' baptism was, was communicating this. Jesus' baptism was communicating this, that, that we were able to see that this is God, that Jesus is all God and all man, and he's part of this eternal and equal trinity that has been for, for eternity past and is now, we're seeing the effects of what he's doing here and now in the flesh. He was king, he was God, but his disciples also wanted us to know that he was rabbi. 
Now, rabbi is just a, a, a fancy word for teacher, but rabbis were big deals back in the day. And as soon as Jesus started to talk, everyone realized, yeah, he may be rabbi, but he's different than we imagined. He does not operate like a rabbi should. He's a super rogue rabbi if he is a rabbi. And that's because of the fact that for a rabbi, Jesus called all, all the wrong disciples. If you take a look at John chapter 1, um, and that's not John chapter 1, verses 435, because... That's not a thing. Uh, it's 35 to 43 or story page 324. Check this out. The next day, this is a uh, third paragraph down on 324. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. And another passage says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the two disciples heard him saying this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went with him and saw that he went where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, which is the Christ. By the way, Christ is just that, it's the Greek version of Messiah. Both just means the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, which it, when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus is calling all of the wrong disciples. And part of the reason that for that is that, that we know that is that these guys are different in every way except for their common lack of religious qualification. If you're a rabbi in this time, you are super revered, big time. But a rabbi, he only calls disciples that he thinks can replace him. Like basically, I'm not going to call one of you if, you don't, if I don't think that you're going to be able to do exactly what I can do. I'm only going to call the best of the best, right? And so there was a process for this when a rabbi turned about 30 years old he would go and he would, he would actually um, start to look for his disciples. And where he would look are the, the people that have gone through the whole process. At six years old, kids would be in something called Bet Sefer, which is where they would study the first five books of the Bible and not just study them, they would memorize them, okay? Some of us have a hard time memorizing our spouse's telephone number, but these guys are memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and when they get to the end of a couple of years of this type of study and training, the rabbi would say, okay, let's go ahead and test this out. And, and they would, he would test them. And, and the kids, the kids that, that couldn't do it, he would say, listen, you've got a great amount of biblical education now, but you're not going to cut it. Go home. Your father's a fisherman. The world needs fishermen. Go in your father's line of work. There's no shame there. And that kid would go home. But for the kids who graduated, they'd go from Bet Sefer to the Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud is where they would study not just the first five books and memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. They would do the rest of the Old Testament. And for years, they would be studying under this rabbi, learning how to memorize. And they would go to the end of it. They'd get to the end of that process. And the rabbi would quiz them and would say, okay, I'm going to start a psalm and you finish it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go. And then they would have to recite off, just be able to from memory. And for the kids that couldn't do it, because I mean, seriously, I would be out the first rung. But some of these kids who made it all the way to this rung, if they didn't finish, they, would, they, they, they couldn't do it. The rabbi would say, listen, 
Your father's a carpenter. Your father's a stone worker. Go home. You, you made it so far. This is great. You should be proud of yourself. But go home and do your father's line of work. There's no shame in that. The world needs masons. The world needs carpenters. We need tradespeople in our, our community. Go home. But to the kids who, who actually pulled it off, he said, you're going to Hollywood. You made it. And they would actually step up into the next ring, which is Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash was not just memorizing. It was learning the yoke or the teaching of their rabbi. The rabbi's teaching, how he interprets the first five books or how he interprets the Psalms and the prophets was something that they would learn and they would take their rabbi's teaching upon them. Some of the, the yokes of their rabbi was super heavy and hard because it was like very, very, very black and white or some of them were, were, were super liberal. It was kind of open-ended. But they would take whatever yoke of their rabbi upon themselves to learn how do they interpret scriptures. And at the end of those years, the rabbi would say to these candidates, you guys did a great job, but you need to go home. You and you and you and you. I believe that you could do what I do. Come and be my disciples. And those kids acted like they won the lottery. They would run home and they would pack up their bags because for the next several years, they would be following this rabbi, learning how he does everything. How does he drink water? How does he eat his food? How does he deal with stress? How does he deal with like celebration? How does he deal with alcohol? How does he deal with his mother? You know, all these things. He would learn, they would learn these things and they would replicate them because they wanted to be exactly like their rabbi. People said back in the day that a Taladim or a good disciple would be one whose the, the dust from their rabbi's sandals were on the top of their feet. They were following so, so close. So why is it that Jesus called all the wrong disciples? Because he calls people when they're already in the line of work that their parents are in. Jesus is recruiting the flunkies. Jesus is not going to the religious elite. He's going to the fishermen and the tax collectors. He's going to people who are in lines of work because they didn't pass. And he says to these people, have you ever wondered why when, when, when Jesus is calling his first disciples, it says that they just drop their nets and they leave? They just drop their vocation and follow this guy? Why would they do that? I used to think it was like a magic spell that Jesus had. It wasn't. These kids were rejected. They never were called by, uh, they were far from being called by a rabbi to come and follow them. But this rabbi said, I believe that you could do what I do. Come and follow me. And they dropped their nets. Not only that, as I said, they were different in every way. Jesus does not call a group of people who were conducive to work together. He was calling people who were radically primed to not work together. He calls zealots who are like modern day freedom fighters or terrorists. And, and one, of, one of these guys, it, these guys were the type of people that hated Rome so much that they carried like a little like dagger with them. And they're like, seriously, man, if I come across the centurion, I'm dropping him like that. And I can do it because I'm good. And he's, he's like, hated Rome so much, wanted to overthrow Rome so much that they were ready to, to drop blood over it. And he calls that guy and says, okay, you're going to be in room A. And another, the other person in room A is going to be this guy over here. The guy who's actually cheating the Jews to help the Romans. You guys are going to be bunkmates. Awesome. And then he goes over here. Not only is he calling political rivals, he's calling people that um, are, are socially, uh, financially diverse as well. He goes over to the Sea of Galilee and he calls people who are casting nets on the side of the lake. Why? 
because their line of work or their family are so poor that they can't afford boats. He calls them. They drop their nets and they follow him. But he's also calling the people they hated. The, the sons of Zebedee. Sons of Zebedee, man. Those guys have got boats. They're so established. They got their whole like fishing industry. My parents cuss these people out every night. And Jesus calls the resourced. Yeah, you guys too. Come with me. And they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. He takes all this conflict, all this diversity, and he brings them into one group and says, you, you are my disciples. I believe that you can do what I'm about to show you. He was rabbi, but he was also judge. Now, here's the thing. Today, we don't like judges, right? We don't like people who are judgmental. The only judge we like is Judge Judy. But the idea of being in front of a judge is not something that we like. Because if you're in front of a judge, the best thing that you can hope for is a light sentence, right? And so when the Bible surfaced the fact that Jesus is judge, we kind of have to go, well, that's, I don't want to think of him as a judge. Well, you need to realize that maybe he's different than you think. In fact, he's absolutely different than you've imagined. This judge, as far as the first followers of Jesus, they wanted us to know that he was a good judge who hung out with the wrong people. This was a good judge who hung out with bad people. Hung out with, Jesus was a guy who said that he was a friend of who? Sinners. They, they called him a drunkard because he hung out with people who, who drank too much. They, call, they, they called him someone who hung out with prostitutes because he hung out with prostitutes. And it wasn't because Jesus was soft peddling truth. Like he wasn't like communicating truth to them. That's the weirdest thing. As Andy Stanley said at one time, I think this is such a good line. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Because let's be honest, when you became a Christian, let's say it was in high school or later, or maybe it's even like just the fact when someone finds out that you're a Christian at work, people get a little weird around you, don't they? Because all of a sudden they're like, oh man, you're like, uh. or if they drop an F-bomb around you, like, oh man, I'm sorry, because I know you're all religious, right? Because people, the idea is like, the, the number one person, someone who's not a follower of God, the number one person they don't want to hang around with is someone who's crazy following God, okay? Because they're not like, you know, the people I really want to hang out with, holy people, they're so much fun. Love holy people. They know how to party. No, no one says that. So why is it that people who were the most unholy people in the culture were hanging out with the most holy person in the universe? Why is it that the people who were actually legitimately doing the most wrong wanting to hang out with the person who never did? Why? It's because this judge was radically different than any other judge or judgmental person they'd ever come across. He was truth, black and white as they come, but he loved them, and they knew it. See, because this judge was actually willing to rescue the guilty. Imagine if you're up against that judge and you know that you're going to be getting the worst sentence. And all of a sudden, the judge does something really, really weird and you weren't expecting it. The judge takes off the robe that he's got on, he leaves the bench and he comes and he stands right next to you and he says, actually, I'm going to take the sentence for this guy. And that's never happened. It doesn't happen. The reason it doesn't happen is that no judge would be willing to sacrifice their liberty for you or for me. They didn't do the crime. It's not just for them to have to do that. But Jesus was the judge who did. He was talking with this religious guy named Nicodemus. 
And, uh, and, and actually, he says the, one of the most famous memorized Bible verses ever. And maybe you, you've heard John 3.16, but you didn't realize it was Jesus saying it. He's talking to Nicodemus, who's this religious guy who just does not, he can't wrap his mind around how this Jesus is who he claims to be. And this Jesus is actually spending time with all these people. And the whole personhood of Jesus is an enigma to Nicodemus. And so Jesus starts to talk to him and say, listen, I, I understand why this is hard for you to, to grapple, but you, you're a religious teacher. You should get this. If, if you're really going to be on the same page with what I'm teaching, you have to, it'd be like Nicodemus if you, you went all the way back to your birth and you started then a clean slate. Because from your birth on, from right now, you've had so many people teaching you things about religion and about me that have given you an off perspective so that what I'm doing seems conflicting to you. If you really want to be on the same page, you almost have to like be born again. I come back to the very beginning, we have a clean slate. We're the only educator on, on faith. The only educator on God is me and what I'm about to do for you. If that was your only educator, then you could go through and re-understand everything you learned up to this point, but with eyes of a blank-slated baby who's learning from the beginning. And then Jesus says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus is judge. He's the exact judge that that world needed at that time. And in 2018, he's the exact judge that we need today. Because every single one of us needs truth, that we know the source. But we need the truth with not just the harshness and the, the coldness of truth. We need the truth coming from someone who actually was willing in the midst of our guilt to do what it took to restore us. We need a judge like Jesus. Each one of us, we need a rabbi. We need someone who looks at us and doesn't simply choose us in spite of our disqualifications and everyone is disqualified, but someone who says, actually, I'm choosing you because of your disqualifications. There is no qualified person for this. Everyone is marred by sin. I am choosing you not because I'm looking past your disqualification. I'm choosing you because I'm the only one who could requalify you by what I've done. And the thing is this, I'm not calling you just to believe in me. Any rabbi did not call his disciples simply just to believe in him. I mean, he was, those rabbis existed. They didn't, yes, of course, I, I, I believe that I'm existing. That's great. But the rabbis were calling their disciples to follow. We need a rabbi today because we need to fo be followers of Jesus. You may believe in Jesus, but Jesus didn't do this when he met you. I want you to believe in me so that you can catch up with me in heaven one day. Jesus, like a rabbi, said, I want you to follow me. I want, I want the dust of my sandals to be on your feet because you're walking so close to me. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you following Jesus? People closest to Jesus wanted us to know that he's a rabbi to be followed and that he's God. 
that he's, that, that he's God of, of, of an amazing amount of God that, that, or the one and only God. And the truth is, is that when you hear people like our friends say, I don't know what I believe about God, but I, if I believe one thing, I believe is that God is a God of love, that God is love. But the truth is that people didn't pick up on that notion, not in, in crystallization, until Jesus. People didn't pick up on the fact that God is love until they saw it in Jesus. When you hear people say that, they're the remnants of an American culture who knew Jesus, perhaps, and they're not really sure how to peg it now. But the thing is this, when we aligned the idea of love and God, the person that we saw that in was Jesus. The cool thing about the Trinity is this, if you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit living in harmony, in love, in glorification from eternity past, when God creates humanity, he's not just creating humanity because he needs someone to love him. That's manipulation. If you have love already, when God creates humanity, he's creating someone to give love to. If you're a Christian, then you have an understanding of that God. And, and, the, and then that brings you to this one point. I may have faith in this person, but the question is, is he in fact who his disciples said that he was? Is he king? Is he the one who rules? Let me take you back to this picture real quick. Um, right after we've, I th- Kenji, I think he was the first one to be baptized. Right after we, we baptized like 14 people or so. It was so cool. And after, it was cold, but it, it was so cool. And after we baptized everyone, everyone quickly got their, their towels and they went off to get changed because they were again in the beginning stages of hypothermia. Pastor Dave is looking around for his towel and he's like, somebody stole my towel. At the Jordan River. Somebody stole my towel. And there's so many people in and out, like you, we couldn't find. And so I, I gave him my towel. I'm like, here, take my towel. I'll go over to the, to the front gift shop area and I'll get another towel. So I'm walking out and I'm walking past all the people from our group that went over to, to, be, uh, to get changed. They were all baptized. And I'm just like, and as I'm walking from that point to the, uh, the front gift shop where I can get a towel, all of a sudden something came over me and I started to cry. And that doesn't happen to me a lot, okay? So it's kind of unusual. And the reason that I started to cry was like all of a sudden I had this amazing experience where I felt the same thing. I'm not a big feelings guy, but I felt the same thing I felt like when I was in junior high at, at this camp in California, Thousand Pines in Crestline, California. And I remember in that moment in, in, a, in a worship service, really being prompted with, when I go home, am I going to live the same way towards my parents? Am I going to live the same way towards the people at my school who don't know Jesus, or am I going to be different? And I remember in those moments, surrendering. and saying, God. And having just this euphoric moment of peace and joy just flooding my heart. My circumstances, none of them had changed. Just that moment of surrender. I remember a couple years later in high school, when, when all of a sudden I was, I was, I felt like God was prompting me to consider being a pastor. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Anything but that. But then surrendering to God and being filled with the most, man, the most amazing peace and joy. And then I'm standing there walking after baptizing all these people. And I just, whenever I baptize folks, it's like a joy. It's awesome. But there's something very personal that was happening in my heart. Because I was realizing that that same God who called me to surrender in junior high and high school and at 41, he was asking me to surrender. It was so cool. Just like, God, I don't, none of my circumstances have changed. I don't know what to do. But I just want to surrender to you. And, I, and again, it wasn't even specific. 
It was just simply, God, I'm surrendering to you right now. And I started to cry because I had that, I was reminded, you don't need to be in Israel for that. You could be right here at Manuka, right here at NBC, right in your home, and live a surrendered life where you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you. And when people start to ask you, so you're seriously like you're like a Christian, like a serious Christian, you could say, yeah, yeah, I am, but different than you imagined. I'm not in this just for the religious like bells and whistles. I'm not in this just to feel better about myself. I'm in this because I'm following the one true Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's wrecked my life. I'm going to follow him to the day I die. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come uh, to the end of the service, God, uh, we're, I pray that you just prompt us with the reality of who you are. Lord, I pray that, that that's a moment, that moment of surrender will be something felt by people in this room right now. Just as we're, we're praying um, and you've been thinking about your own life, I want to just give you an oper- some space between you and God. What do you need to surrender in your relationship? that's just off from the following of Jesus, whether it's an attitude or it's an action. What do you need to surrender? What do you need to surrender in, in the department of your life that, that just is full of fear or stress or anxiety? What, what in your past do you, do you just need to surrender and say, I'm just giving this to you because I can't handle it one more hour more? What about your future? Do you need to surrender right now? Do that. Communicate with Jesus who's listening. Lord God, I pray that you help us walk out of this room as people who are surrendered completely to you and that when we forget, when we fall off, that you reunite us with that moment once again. Lord, we lift up to you this time as we bring to you our tithes and offerings, God that that's an action of surrender as well. And Lord, I pray that you make an impact in our community and our world as a result of it. Lord, in um, the different ministries at this church, um, like divorce care and other ministries that are aiming to bring healing and hope that comes from your word, from your gospel, Lord, I pray that you continue to cause those to impact people in very real and pragmatic ways. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.